couple weeks ago, we finished up the book of Titus. This is your first time with us. We walked through the book of Titus together. And in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul shared with that new church, and uh, we talked about as a new church, what our position towards our society, what our position towards our government specifically, what our position towards uh, the unbelievers in the circles we live in are. What should be our stance towards those who are outside of the body of Christ? Should we uh, be building walls or bridges is the way we talked about it. And the, the general uh, statement or the general lesson that we boiled things down to was that we are not to be agents of social change merely, but we are to be agents of spiritual change. That our goal, uh, that our overarching goal, that our priority goal is not to, to be about moral justice and social justice in this world, although those, are, although those are good things. Our goal is, on our world and specifically our nation, we may be disappointed with how our nation looks today, a nation that we, uh, we believe, most of us, at one time was a Judeo-Christian nation, at least in theory. Uh, by the way, that is, that's long past. We are no longer that, even in theory. All right? But that nation that we live in, we, we can't just put a veneer over the sin. The morality, the, the sin that we see in the lives of the non-Christians that live in our neighborhoods, that run our governments, that run our PTOs, that run our PTAs, that run all those things. We can't live in a war against them. We live a life that brings a light into their darkness. Okay? And so we're not, as believers we saw in Titus, we're not against the world. We are for the world, just like Christ was for his children. Christ was calling the world to repentance. There was a great love that he had for them. There is to be a great love that we have for our world, despite their sin. And Titus argued it's because if we look back, we see our own sin. And God still had mercy upon us. And so we have a mercy towards society and community. Many of you had questions as we talked about that. Uh, you had questions and thoughts and good comments about about how we relate to government, how we relate to society, a sinful society nonetheless. Okay, How do we, how do, we do that? Uh, should we be uh, agents of social change on some level, in some venues, to some degree in our world? Great thoughts on that. Today I want to I return to that here on this 4th of July weekend. Uh, return to thinking about what our feelings and our attitude should be towards our nation in particular. Uh, I want to do it... Uh, I want to do it from a different perspective and by looking through a different text. So grab your Bible. We're going to be in James chapter 4. James chapter 4. It's one of the earliest of the epistles. This is written long before the Apostle Paul even came to know Christ. James chapter 4. As you're turning there, I want to read you something by way of transition from that Titus discussion to our July 4th message today. Uh, I picked up this book a couple years back. It was written shortly after September 11th by a guy named John MacArthur. He's a pastor, theologian, and obviously an author. He wrote a book called Can God Bless America? And I like little books like this from really solid theologians because I'm not a, I'm not a speed reader. But I read this book this past uh, holiday weekend. And uh, he, he has a couple paragraphs here that I want to read you that sort of sum up what we talked about in Titus and we'll bridge to where we're going to go here and look at this topic from another perspective in James. Okay, so listen to this. I know it's, you're not supposed to read in public speaking. You're just not supposed to do it. But you guys are, 
You guys are studs, so you're going you're gonna to track right here with me, okay? Listen to what he says here about our nation, about sin, about what our responsibility is towards our nation, how we're to respond. What is our hope? Can judgment against nations that turn against his truth? Quote, if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord, quoting Isaiah, or Jeremiah 12. Perhaps no society has ever taken a more dramatic turn against God than America did in the latter half of the 20th century. Divine judgment seems inevitable if our nation continues down that road. But judgment can still be averted and blessing regained through repentance and spiritual renewal. And that's what we're, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Can, can we still turn this thing around? The word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah goes on to say, The instant I speak, that's God, concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. The author goes on to say, Certainly God can bless America. Certainly He can. But the necessary prelude... Don't miss this. The necessary prelude to national blessing overall for America is the sweeping spiritual renewal that begins with individual repentance and a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from a such, apart from a, such a profound spiritual awakening and a decisive return to the God of Scripture, we have no right as a nation, he says, to anticipate anything but God's judgment. The revival of our tenants involves a change of heart, not merely a change of public policy. And the first to repent must be the people of God, Christians who know and love Christ, but whom have fallen into a state of spiritual lethargy and indifference and have left their first love. Quote of Revelation 2.4. We have diverted our efforts and energies. He's talking about the church here. We've diverted our efforts and energies and strategies away from evangelism. And he says we need to repent of that. Unfortunately, the church today is at war with the culture, and many Christians think by opposing moral decline through protest and politics, they are doing all they can do to, quote, redeem society. They have begun to view their unbelieving neighbors as the enemy rather than the mission field. And as the rift widens between the religious right and the rest of society, the gospel message, don't miss this, the gospel message is being lost in the din of conflict. The tender love of sinners has been replaced by a bitter, bitter rivalry for influence. Thus, the only truth that can ultimately draw people to sincere repentance is too often being set aside in favor of political rhetoric and partisan squabbling. Now, I got two more sentences, so hang on here. No national revival has ever occurred because of political strategizing or legislative initiatives. Revivals don't occur when the people of God protest or demonstrate against the sins of unbelievers. Revivals aren't the fruit of boycotts or debates about public policy. Revivals occur when the word go down through verse 10. Ten steps towards repentance, according to James. James is writing uh, seemingly to believers, early Jewish believers in the first century. Uh, but the tone of his letter quickly changes. It goes in and out. Uh, in chapter 4, it seems that Paul, uh, James, excuse me, it seems that James uh, not only addresses believers, but he addresses non-believers as well. So I wanted to point that out because it's important to understand who the author is talking to when you go into a passage. Who is he speaking of? Is he talking to us, the church, believers? 
Most theologians believe that he is either speaking to one or the other. There's a handful of guys that I read who believe that he's speaking to both, that this passage is applicable to both. Here's, here's how I've landed on the debate. I believe he is speaking to both. Here's why. I think, I think James realizes, although he's addressing this, this epistle to a church, to a specific group of believers, that among that group of believers, there are most likely those who name the name of Christ who are not actually believers. And so he puts this passage in here that describes in detail really a ten-step plan of what true repentance really is. And it's applicable both for us as believers who need to continually be about repentance and for those who have never bowed the knee and need to repent for the very first time. So let's look at this. Ten steps. Number one. Verse, our very nature is to buck authority. Our very nature is to rebel against anyone who would oppress us and tell us what to do. I mean, we see it early on in our kids. Son, don't bite your brother. Bites his brother. Son, don't push your brother down. Pushes him down. It's obvious, okay? It's, we don't like to listen to authority. We like to be the Lord of our own ring, if you will. We like to be CEO. We like to be in charge of our own life. This, this first initial step that James gives us, it seems obvious and it seems simple and it seems, it seems like it, it, it's just basic. But the truth is, this is where the most of us have a, have a problem getting started at all in a relationship with God. We don't want to place ourselves under God. It's the same word used when talking about wives to husbands. Uh, employees to employers, uh, citizens to the king. It's a word, it's really a military word. It's a word that connotates us as privates, if you will, placing ourselves under the general. We see our proper place to the guy who is in charge. He's going to paint a picture for us here of what, what true repentance looks like. Number one, it looks like a person who places themselves under the rightful king. We willingly submit to our God. Number two, he says, still penance, in order to have an attitude of repentance. Number two, he says, we are to resist. Resist the devil. It's, again, a military term. It literally means to set ourselves up in opposition, to, to get in military array against the enemy. We're to draw a line in the dirt and say, we're going to fight. We're going to make a stand right here. We're not going to be uh, taken over hostily by the enemy any longer. Resist the devil. The inference here is not that we just resist the person of the devil, but we resist everything that is evil that comes along with him. We resist his ways. We resist the temptations that he puts in our life. We resist the, the, the temptation to sin that he lays before us. We resist that evil. We draw that line in the dirt and say we're not going to go that far anymore. We're going to serve God and God alone. We're going to fight against that temptation. Uh, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, a guy named Naaman gets saved. And uh, he gets saved by dipping himself in uh, the Jordan River, in the river of God. And uh, when he finally comes to repentance and he humbles himself before God... And uh, he's getting ready to leave, and he's getting ready to go back to his own country. He says to one of his servants, he says, get two loads of that dirt and bring it back to where we live. 
He says, because I'm not going to worship anywhere else but where God says to worship. He said, this place is holy. I'm going to serve God. General, our country uh, does not resist the devil. We acquiesce to his ways. We embrace evil. Ephesians 6 warns us to put on the full armor of God so that we will be able to resist the schemes of the devil. Genesis 6 says that he is crafty. Point. He's a slick dude. And his attacks, those fiery darts that he sends our way, are not always so blatant and obvious. We talked about this in Titus, that he can get us in many different ways. He can cripple us. Simply put, we must say no to temptation, both small and large. I mean, the majority of us, okay, I'm going to assume something here for a moment. The majority of us uh, aren't going to get caught up in adultery this week. We're not going to switch over to homosexuality. You're not going to turn serial killer this week, okay, I hope. Uh, that's my assumption. We don't, we don't think, we don't have to burden ourselves typically with those, with those big sins. For me, the real battle comes in the small, everyday sins that I tend to overlook in life. Those small winds that Satan collects against me that make me ineffective. To resist the devil and everything that comes with him, his lies, his deceit, his craftiness. It's to say that I'm going to fight day in and day out. I'm going to draw that line in the sand. And I'm going to win those small battles and they're going to accumulate. Sometimes... uh, I have to go back to when I got saved in high school and think about some of, those, some of those early convictions that I had that I don't seem to give much thought to these days. I mean, I've been a Christian now 10 plus years. Surely I don't have to worry about some of those small things anymore. I remember, I remember agonizing over the music I listened to early on in my Christian walk. I remember agonizing over TV shows. I remember agonizing over what kind of movies I would go to. I mean, maybe you need to ask yourself, how are you doing in this whole thing of resisting Satan and everything that comes along with him? Are you winning those small battles? When, um, when the Holy Spirit's on vacation or you know, maybe he's sick or something, my wife fills in his place. And um, it's amazing her hearing. She's probably in the crowd room back there, but I can't see her, so I'm just going to pretend she's not in there. Uh, it's amazing how, um, how well she just steps right in his place. She can be three rooms away from the TV, right? And hear foul language on the TV, TV and yell across the house, What are you watching in there, pastor? <laughs> right? Always with grace. Uh, and, and it's never real foul language even. It's just the bleeps on TBS, you know, that I just, they just come in and go. And they just, it's just beep, 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 and... and they're not really cursing, so I, I, I just don't even, I don't even think. But we got to think. Repentance is resisting when man draws near to God. Always a blessing to be found in the presence of God. But I got to warn you that Scripture also says, uh, and also cautions us about the danger in approaching a holy God while we remain in our sin. Okay, do you understand that? There's always in Scripture a warning, a caution both Old and New Testament, approaching God in our own means, on our own, in our sin, without having it taken care of, approaching a holy God, there's always this warning. In the Old Testament, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice on the part of the nation, 
uh, it was one guy who could go in, and he can only go in at certain times. That's, that's, how, that's how important this was. That's how holy this place was. I mean, there was a holy place, and there was a holy, a holy place. I mean, it was a special place, and there was this big, thick curtain, and nobody else could go in but this one guy. And it was so, it was so important that he approached God on God's terms, that if he went in there on his own terms, God would strike him dead. And so you always, I always kind of wonder about this. You know, the guys, the priests get, get together and, you know, all right, who's going in? And, uh, Harold, you're going in. And, uh, you know, good luck, buddy. Hope you got your life right. And, uh, you know, pull back the curtain, guys. Harold's going in. And uh, do you know what they did for these high priests when they would go in there? They did some stuff. They, they had special garments that they had to wear. On the bottom of these garments, they would sew in these little bells so that when the priest went in there, if it ringing, he's dead. Keep moving in there, Harold, or we're going to assume that God's wiped you out. And I always wonder, who's going to go in after that? Who's going to be brave enough to go in and pull this guy out after God has struck him for approaching, not on God's terms, but on his own terms? You know what they did? They tied a rope around his ankle. And they sent him in with a rope. So that if God struck him dead, they didn't have to go in. They just drug him out. Drawing near to God in this passage, it, it, is, it is a command, it is, to be a, it is to be a joy, it is to be a pleasure, but there's an overtone to this whole passage that causes repentance, that causes humility, that causes us to address our sin. We cannot draw near to God until we've done that. The overtone in this whole passage is that we recognize our sin. There's another warning in Scripture about drawing near to God. It says that if we draw near with empty words or with ritualistic hearts, God will not receive us. Through Isaiah, God rebukes those who draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, he says, but their hearts are far from me. So this drawing near to God, it's not just to be an external deal. It doesn't just mean, hey, find a church to go to on Sunday. That's not drawing near to God. So, what that means. We know what we have to address before we do that. Draw near. Draw near. Would you notice at the end of verse 8, the promise that comes along with this? Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. The second half of that phrase. Isn't that good? Isn't that a good promise? That if, if our hearts press in towards God, the promise is that He will draw near to us. Contrast that back to verse 7. We resist the devil. What does it say? What is the promise that comes in verse 7? And He will flee from us. You draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Beautiful picture. Well, number 4, He says... In this list, cleanse your hands, verse 8. Cleanse your hands. This is another reference to Old Testament ceremonial law. When that priest would go in to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the sin of the nation, on behalf of his own sin, he had to go through this process of washing his hands. Now, this wasn't because his hands were dirty. It was as a reminder to him. It was as a reminder to everyone who saw it. It was as a reminder to the whole nation 
that as he approached this holy place, as he brought the guilt on our hands, we have sin that, that must be dealt with. Cleanse your hands. It's a recognition of our need for cleansing before a holy God. It was recognition of sin. Isaiah tells us, the Lord tells us in Isaiah, that our hands are defiled with blood, our fingers with iniquity. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, the Lord says, I will not hear them. Get sin off of your hands. Keep going. Fifth thing he says, and it's in relation to cleansing our hands, he's now going to go from the outside to the inside. Get sin out of your life. Get sin off of your hands. Remove the guilt. Recognize it. Remove it. Now he moves inward and he says, purify your hearts. If we deal with our hands alone and we don't go to the inside and deal with the heart, it's just superficial. It's more than a ceremonial act. Here that marks our repentance. Psalm 51 says that the sacrifice which is acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's that's the deep desire of our God. Double-minded. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know what he's saying there? The guy who will cleanse his hands but not purify his heart, is double-minded. Literally, it means you're two-souled. It means you're living this, this dual life. That on the outside, you may be all clean and shiny. You may have repented on the surface, but in your heart, there is no repentance. And he says it's like living this, this, these two lives. Point being, we can't live a dual life and be in true repentance. We can't be double-minded. Uh, let me put it this way. It means, if, it means that you are convicted of sin even if you don't get caught. You tracking with me here? It means you're convicted of sin even if you don't get caught. That's what it means not to be double-minded. That into our heart and into our mind, we're not living a life on the outside and then living a different life in the comfort of our own home that we are waging war against our flesh. We are, we are beating our bodies into submission. We are fighting this thing. We're not on the fence. Well, keep going. Verse 9. My translation says in verse 9, our next imperative here, our next command, my translation says to be miserable. Some of your translations say lament. Uh, some of you, it's the passage where he's dealing with the inner struggle, this inner conflict that he has with his own sin. And he goes on and on and it's back and forth. And by the time you get done reading it, he's 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 saying uh, the things that I don't want to do. I end up doing the things I want to do. I don't do. And I find this law that's inside of me and I go back and I forth. And at the end of it, you're just exhausted. You're miserable, literally, by the end of it. And so is the Apostle Paul literally dealing with that struggle in his life, at the end of it, he just breaks down. And you remember what he says? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who can even save me from this body of sin? Thanks be to Jesus. Thanks be to Jesus. 
that word there when he says, wretched man that I am, it's the same word here for miserable. Okay? Here's, here's the point. That inner struggle that's going in, that struggle with sin, this desire for repentance in our life to fight that fight, to fight that inner battle, it should cause us, James says, Paul picks up on it later in Romans 7 and says, it should cause us to come to an end of ourselves and say, I'm just wretched. I am miserable. It should wear us out. It should bring us down to that point. Wretched man that I am, who, who can save me from this body of sin? And so James starts to talk about our attitude here. What is, our, what is an ad, correct attitude of repentance? He says, that's my excuse anyway. Uh, again, in verse 9, he's going to go on here with this attitude of repentance. We're not just to be miserable. He's going to take it the next step. He's going to say, mourn. Mourn. When do you mourn? When you realize there's been a death. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's not just talking about those who realize that someone in their family has passed on. He's talking about those who realize that their sin is causing their own death. Mourn over your sinfulness. And the promise is you will be comforted, are the words of Jesus. Isaiah 6 conveys this sentiment. Isaiah encounters a holy God, high and lifted up, train of his robe filling the temple, things flying around, crying out, holy, holy, holy. Very intimidating scene. The picture is that Isaiah is in the presence of a holy God and he's standing there bare before God in all of his sin. You remember Isaiah's response? Oh, I can't be here. I can't be here. I am a man who's undone. It's a picture of mourning over his coming death because of his sin. He keeps going here in verse 9. He takes it another step. We're not just to mourn, but he says we're to weep. Again, these are all imperatives, by the way. Do you see the progression? Jesus, that he would deny him three times. It says that remembering that, you remember what it says? Peter wept bitterly. It broke him. It broke his heart. The reality, the truth of his sin, the truth of his sin broke his heart and he wept bitterly. It's a picture of extreme disappointment in self. Again, this isn't popular in our society. We want people to feel good about themselves. Can I tell you, there is, there is something holy about coming to the end of yourself. There's something holy about finding the end of yourself when in the presence of a holy God and hanging your head in shame. There's not enough of that in our world today. Um, incidentally, this verse, it, it for me has become in ministry uh, sort of a litmus test. And I, I, I shy away from ever saying any of the uh, concluding sort of statements that are, if I don't see this, then I assume this. Especially those that say, if I don't see this or if this isn't going on, then you're probably not a believer but this is one of those this is one of those times where I, I I just my spirit resonates with this passage that if I don't see misery on occasion, if I don't see mourning on occasion, if I don't see a heart that weeps over your sin personally, at least on occasion, 
you get this, there's this outward, even emotional response. And I know, in, especially in Baptist circles, we don't like to talk about the emotion. But can I tell you that when you get into the presence of a holy God and you are undone, there will be an emotional response. The question is, is it going to be now or is it going to be later? Jesus says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess one day. I mean, it's, it's going to happen. Let it happen now. I, I look around at, at some people who and they just come Sunday after Sunday or they show up every now and then on Sundays. And uh, I talk to them and, and it's cordial at best, but there's really no... You see nothing of spiritual depth going on in their heart. There's, there's nothing in their eyes when we're singing these great worship songs. There's nothing in their posture that communicates in the slightest degree that they understand their depravity, they understand God's holiness. And, and I'll just say this, it, it just worries me, okay? It, it concerns me. Everyone in Scripture who sees God for who He truly is, sees God's magnitude, sees God's bigness, everyone from the beginning to the end, every one of them, is moved to their core. Don't tell me that you can encounter a holy God, understand your sinfulness, and not be moved at some time or another. And at the end of it, everybody else got up. There was some sort of fellowship meal or something. Everybody went to the back to the fellowship hall to eat. And I had got up and I didn't realize, and my parents had got up and we didn't realize that my buddy Will uh, was still in the pew. And my mom kind of nudged me on the way back. She said, Hey, what's, is, there, is Will all right? Is there, is there something wrong with Will? And I, here's what I knew. I knew Will long enough. I knew him well enough to know that when I looked back and I just saw his head hung in the pew, I knew what was going on. Something had been communicated about the holiness of God or something had been made a reality to him about his own sinfulness that had, that had caused him to be stunned, to be broken. And I knew in a moment, when I, when I looked at his countenance, that the guy was contemplating both the holiness of God and his own wretchedness. And he just had to sit in that for a moment. Hey, if that doesn't happen to you on occasion, then you're not getting a clear picture of our King. And you don't fully understand your own sinfulness. Make sure that's happening. There should be misery, mourning, and weeping. He goes on in verse 9 and he says, Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. He's not a, he's not a, a killjoy here. He doesn't want us to walk around never with joy. Scripture would indicate that we are to have joy. We are to laugh. Brush it off. We need to take it seriously. Sometimes we need to, we need to just sit in the moment. Consider... Think deeply about who our God is and how big the gap is between us and Him. Sometimes we just need to, to stop the laughter, stop the superficial thing that goes on in our hearts sometimes. I think that's what he's referring to here. And we need to really consider. I mean, really consider how we stand before a holy God. And we need to let that affect us. That's a picture of true repentance. Last one here. Verse 10. 
Verse 10, he says, humble yourself. And this is really a bookend to the whole paragraph here. We started in verse 7, but will you go back to verse 6 for just a moment? In verse 6, he quotes Proverbs 3.34. says, God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, again, a quote of Proverbs 3. God is opposed to the proud. Okay, we need to understand that. God is opposed to the proud. You know what that word is? It's the same word that he uses in the next verse where he says that we are to resist the devil. We are to, i.e., oppose the devil. We are to set up military men who would stand before a holy God and not bow the knee. Scripture says that our God will set himself against that person in military formation. I don't have to tell you what the outcome would be. But there's a promise here at the end. There's good news at the end of verse 6. But he also gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. You see the promise at the end of verse 10. There's good news. If we're not the proud, if we are the humble... He will exalt you. He will raise you up. He gives grace to the humble. Um, Let me close with this. Uh, What does this have to do with the fourth? What does it have to do with our nation, etc.? If we want to make headway in our society, okay? If we want to know what our role is, if we want to know what our job is in relation to society, government, etc., a nation that in many ways is going downhill, and that's the kind way to say it, okay? All right, and I know you guys are concerned and your heart breaks and you pray for our nation and you pray for God to bless our nation. The more important question is, John MacArthur's repent. He will draw near to you. He will give you Grace. Our lives, both Christians and non-Christians, our lives need to line up with this picture of repentance. If we want to know how God will bless our nation, we need to first as believers make sure that we are repentant in these ways. Make sure that this stuff is happening in our life as often as it needs to happen. And number two as believers, we need to take this key and use it in our world. I mean, this this is our job. You want to see our nation improve? You want to see uh, our nation improve for our kids and our grandkids? Our only hope and our best hope is not for social or moral change. Social or moral justice. Our best hope is that men, both individually and corporately, would repent, and then God would look favorably upon them. Let me put it this way. I truly believe that if God, uh, if we we desire for God to bless, let's just say Jefferson, our immediate community, it is at least in part, in direct proportion, to the number of those in that community who would do this, who would repent. At least we can solicit the blessing and the favor of God. God will, he will see 
from heaven this true repentance. And He will at least draw near and He will give us grace. And those are the greatest blessings we could ever hope for. Um, a guy named Mortimer Adler, well-known educator, died back in the late 80s, I think. He had a philosophy on education. He, he dropped out of school when he was 14, but he ended up uh, being a well-known professor at Columbia, I believe. And uh, he had some uh, interesting philosophies of education. He said once that he believes that uh, when our kids reach the teenage years, we need to take them out of school. And the best thing for them would be to either put them in a job or to put them in the military. And he said, it's not, it won't work. Nobody's going to let us get away with this. He said, but it'd be the best thing for us because teenagers, uh, they have this attitude that they know it all. Okay? And, and I remember when I was a teenager, I knew it all. All right? And on occasion, uh, I teach in the Gwinnett County High Schools. Uh, I teach teenagers abstinence. And uh, they know it all. They think. And sometimes I just want to grab one of them and just shake them and say, hey, listen, let me just give you a glimpse of what's to come. Let me just help you to lift your eyes a little bit, see a little bit of the bigger picture. I was just as dumb as you are right now. I wish somebody would have grabbed me and said this to me. Warren Radler said, he said, the best thing for these teenagers who think they know it all is to put them in a job, stick them out there in McDonald's, that we have to be humbled so that we can become teachable. God is, God is in this business, in this time that we live in, of trying to shake us into a reality where we see His holiness for what it truly is and where we see our sin for what it truly is so that it wakes us up. And in turn, we're humbled. In turn, we, we fall down and we give up and we wave the white flag and we say, God, You are who You say You are. And I'm everything You say that I am. And I repent. I repent. Um, collectively, that's our only hope. So what is our job? Our job is like uh, John the Baptist of old, to be the voice crying out in the wilderness, repent, <laughs> repent. For both the king and his kingdom are at hand. He paved the way for Christ. We are to pave the way for Christ and his message we're, we're to be the mouthpiece of God here on earth. Hey, repent. See your sins. See God's holiness. That's our job. That's our hope. That's the best thing we have to offer this world. Don't sell it for anything else. Let's pray.